Cast. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Uh, today, I've got um, an extremely special guest. It's my first two-time guest of the series. Uh, you may have met him on episode 212. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. That's going to be Mr. Uh, Timothy Loopfer. Uh, Tim, how are you doing today? Very good, Earl. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, you know, we're recording uh, in late March right now in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. So uh, doing just about as good as can be expected. How about yourself? Well, I'm here in the state of New York, which uh, just had a set of restrictions announced uh, by the governor. So we're all having to hunker down a lot more than uh, usual. But, uh, you know, we've all got to push through this and... Uh, as the Brits would say, keep calm and carry on as best we can. There you go. There you go. Well, so again, uh, for our listeners who, who heard you on uh, 212, uh, we had a great discussion then, and I felt that we could have probably talked for another two or three hours. So uh, we decided to make this happen, and, and uh, we have a target topic. But before we get into that, you've already answered the question about what does the burden of command mean to you? But I was just curious if there's anything you'd like to add to your previous answer. Well, I think, Earl, the, the main thing I want to talk about today is this idea of charisma, uh, because I think it's actually a false idol uh, that people are chasing. So I think um, I think that, that would be the best thing to start with, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Let's go right into it. Okay. Well, the reason I want to talk about this is because I fear that charisma is one of those overused words. I, I see it used to describe people, to describe leaders quite a bit. And yet, when you step back and look at the original meaning and some of the historical examples, I think it's actually a lot rarer than people, you know, than the way people are using it today. Um, and so what I'd like to do is, first of all, take a look at the original word, and then we can discuss some historical examples. Um, because the main thing I'm trying to say is, look, charisma is something very rare. In most cases, it's turned out to be quite dangerous and had very, very bad ends, which I'll describe. And the real point is, no, for all of us in leadership positions, and this is part of the burden of command, Charisma is a shortcut that we should not aspire to. Uh, what we want to do in terms of leading is hard work. And I'm going to submit that for the vast, vast majority of us, that's never going to change. So let's not look for the shortcut of charisma. Um, does that make sense? No, it absolutely does. And, and I like your your idea there. So Because I think a lot of people listening right now are probably like, well, you know, charisma should be a good leadership quality, but starting right. with the definition, I think, will, will help them understand where you're coming from. Right. No, that's good. Because charisma is from the Greek, as so many of our words are, and it means a gift. And really what a person who is truly charismatic is, is they're the person who walks into the room and you've never met them before. You know nothing about this person. And this person, and it can be male or female, all of a sudden starts talking and you are mesmerized. 
And I think people misuse the word because they'll talk about somebody who's already a successful leader and they'll say, isn't this person charismatic? Or they'll talk about somebody who's a very good orator, a very good speaker, and they'll say, this person is charismatic. No, it, it's, I think it's quite a bit more, um, framed and restricted than that. Charisma is this person that gets us to want to follow them automatically. In other words, it's as if a switch goes off in your head and any skepticism, any pushback, any doubt is removed. And you just say, oh my gosh, uh, I want to do whatever this person says. And the point I want to make is using some historical examples, in most cases, this hasn't turned out very well at all. Right. Uh, what I'm, I'm going to suggest, and it is a little counterintuitive, certainly, is that no, charisma is not something that we should seek as leaders, and it's not something we should seek as followers either. Um, so if it's okay, Earl, if I could give a couple of my examples to demonstrate why I think uh, this is not a place we want to go. Yeah, absolutely. I'm on the edge of my seat here, and I think the listeners are too, so, so go right into it. All righty. Well, let's go back 2,500 years ago, roughly, to ancient Athens. And this is the story of Alcibiades. And Alcibiades uh, is one of the characters, one of the people that's looked at in one of the famous books from the ancient times that has survived. And that book is called Plutarch's Lives. And Plutarch was a Greek, but he actually wrote during the time of the Roman Empire. And what he did in his book was look at famous Greeks and Romans. And he would look at their lives and then basically look for, for lessons, especially something like moral lessons, out of the example of their lives. And it's interesting to think about that this book, Plutarch's Lives, was actually standard reading for educated people up until only a couple of generations ago. In other words, uh, I'm in my late 60s. Uh, this was a book that my grandfathers uh, probably read, and, and surely I know one of my grandfathers, I think very definitely did, read it. Um, and for example, Harry Truman, our president, once said that it doesn't get any better than old Plutarch, uh, meaning that as a source of historical examples to use to gain wisdom, this was really good. Now, today, these things from the ancients are not nearly as popular as they used to be, but I, I hope by giving this example, maybe some people say, hey, maybe we ought to take a look at these things. So let me just real quick tell you the story of Alcibiades. He was a young man in ancient Athens. He was a student of Socrates. And in the accounts, he was very handsome. And he was the type of person who was very persuasive in a conversation, and that people just seemed to be mesmerized by him. Now, he also, through wild parties, he was a womanizer, he, he chased uh, women, this sort of thing. And it would have been nice if he just stuck to that, but instead he got involved in politics. And back in those days, uh, this is around uh, the mid-400 uh, B.C., uh, Athens was at war with Sparta in the Great Peloponnesian War. 
And Alcibiades got involved in warfare, as all major citizens did in those days, and he also got involved in politics. Now, interesting, Alcibiades was a very brave man on the battlefield, and he had a lot of good qualities. But the problem was that he had this knack, this charisma, where he could convince people on without very much effort to do the things that he outlined. And one of the things he outlined was a new strategy for the war against the Spartans. And this particular strategy, just real quick, was to attack the Greek city-state way over in the island of Sicily to attack that Greek colony. And as it turns out, just real quick, that that expedition was a complete military disaster, and it's one of the reasons Athens lost the war against Sparta. And so, basically, Alcibiades' idea wasn't very good, but it gets even juicier and crazier after that because people would turn against him in Athens because of what happened, and he went over to Sparta. And he convinced the people in Sparta to pay attention to him and listen to him. And then after a while, people got a little tired of that over in Sparta, and Alcibiades ended up going over to, of all groups, the Persians, who were the mortal enemies of all the Greeks. And so he basically, it would appear, had no loyalty to anything. He would use this ability to ingratiate himself with other people. And then he ends up, ironically, going back to Athens, and the people take him back in, and they start listening to him again. And as one of the Greek writers at the time said, the people are so confused. They love him, they hate him, but they can't do without him. (laughs) Um, And basically, just about everything he touched eventually turned into a very, very bad outcome. Uh, He was eventually killed by two men, and the account in Plutarch varies. Plutarch says it was either because he had raped their sister or that they were angry at him over some political thing. But in any case, he was murdered uh, by these two people at a at about Alcibiades' age was about 45. Hmm. So there's a, an example of somebody who had this ability to convince people so easily, almost without effort, and yet it led to very bad outcomes. And the point I'm trying to make from this example, and I've got some others I can talk about, is we don't, we don't want these things at all. Um, as leaders... No, we really need to work very hard and get people's trust uh, without any, you know, without magic, without something happening just right away. Um, And as followers, we always need to retain a degree of skepticism and healthy doubt because we don't want to follow people blindly. Uh, because that usually doesn't have very good outcomes. And I say this because I see people who actually go out and say, I can teach you charisma. Well, I actually don't think this is something that can be taught. I think it actually is a gift of someone's personality, and it's very rare. Um, so does that does that help? Does that give you an idea of this? Well, yeah, it does. Uh, you know, and, and for the listeners, I mean, this guy must have been – extremely charismatic to pull that off because uh, 
you know, the Spartans weren't exactly known for being a uh, forgiving lot to those who stood <laughs> against them, right? Uh, absolutely. <laughs> so, so for him to be able to uh, go to them and, and worm his way in, man, that, that was a slick talker. No, absolutely. And the thing is that as you look at other examples of history, um, you actually see the same pattern. Uh, there were there were some people in medieval Italy. Uh, one was a man by the name of Rienza de Cola, and he got people all riled up in the city of Rome in the 1300s and basically took over the city of Rome. And once again, there was this pattern. He seemed to be very charismatic, that he seemed to draw people to himself, uh, and he wanted to change things. And then it turned out, as he got more authority and the like, he was quite a tyrant. And finally, people soured of him, uh, and he came to a very bad end. He was killed by a mob. Um, and then there was also in uh, Renaissance Italy, Savonarola in the city of Florence, who took over the city there. He was a priest in one of the uh, orders of the monks, and he was a very convincing speaker, and he got everyone all riled up, and they threw out the existing government. And then um, once again, he proved to be very, very tyrannical, and he came to a bad end himself. So you actually see this pattern working itself out, and I think it's, it's really a warning. And it's interesting because neurologists looking at this uh, do suggest that under these special conditions of someone who is charismatic, our brains actually do switch the doubt and the skepticism off, and we just seem to be mesmerized. So it is something that people are now starting to look at in terms of the neurological aspects. Well, you, you know, it's interesting, and, and you know, um, I'm kind of a, a history buff too, and uh, not quite at your level, but, uh, you know, I've, I've uh, read a long time ago, read Plutarch's Lives, and I like the way it's laid out, and I, I highly recommend any listeners pick it up. Um, I don't know, have you have you had an opportunity to read, uh, so Stanley McChrystal, General Stanley McChrystal, wrote a book, Leaders, Myth, and Reality, and he kind of tried to mimic Plutarch's layout uh, with some more modern examples. I don't know if you've read that one or not. No, I, ha I haven't read it. I confess I've read the reviews, but I haven't read the book yet. <laughs> so it's on the long list. <laughs> no, it's it's it, it's pretty it's pretty good. I think he 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 does a good job. But uh, you know, you talked about the neuroscience part there for a second, and and you know, one of the things my uh, uh, my partner and I do when we're we're teaching is we, we talk about. Uh, some unconscious biases. And uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the term, uh, the Harding effect. Yes. Oh, very definitely. Yes. Right. And, and so that's exactly what I was, I was thinking as you're talking about, uh, about this is that that Harding effect, uh, you know, cause for, for the listeners who haven't heard of it, you know, essentially it's named after uh, President Warren Harding. And uh, essentially the, 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 premise is the only reason he got elected is because he was good-looking, charismatic, and he, quote, looked like he should be the president. There was, there was nothing that talked about his qualifications, really. He mm -hmm. just looked presidential, and it didn't end well uh, during that presidency either. No, it very definitely didn't. And, and um, as you know, 
after he died because he went up for a trip to Alaska and he caught uh, some kind of cold or something that developed into a lot worse and he passed away mm-hmm. as president. And at first people were saying, oh my gosh, he's been such a great president. Let's build a monument, all this sort of thing. And then people started looking sort of under the rug uh, and all the various scandals and bad behavior that had been going on. And uh, so the idea of a monument and stuff uh, quickly drifted away uh, because he was, as the Texans would say, he was all hat and no cattle. Well, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, I don't want to steal your thunder as you go through this, but I think that is one of the big pitfalls with with charisma is it is very situational, right? I mean, uh, yes. we, yeah, yeah, you definitely you have to have an audience that is susceptible to this. And in so many cases, unfortunately, that means an audience that is, um, you know, where times are tough, where there's a crisis. And I think in those times, this is when people do look for the men on horseback for the easy solution. And they yearn for somebody who can come in and simplify things and straighten things out. And I think that is the fertile ground that very often works for someone who does have charisma. Um, and I'd like, if it's okay, Earl, I'd like to go to another example that's much more um, close to us in terms of uh, timing. And that's Jim Jones out mm. of uh, California. Um so is it okay if I talk a little bit about that as well? Oh, yes, sir. Go right ahead. Well, I think that's a very good example of the dangers that I'm talking about. And people will automatically, I think, when you name, when you pick the name Jim Jones, they'll think about uh, his taking his group to Guyana in South America and ultimately 900 people committed suicide, including Jones himself. Now – and he basically had a what we would call a cult of followers. And they did this. But what I want to do is go back a little bit and just talk about his effects before this tragedy occurred. Um, he was a um, basically a person in the San Francisco area who had a quasi-religious, quasi-political approach uh, to helping people. And he gathered around him uh, quite a few people, and I would say they were his ardent followers. And I think the real key here was, I, I think Jim Jones did have charisma because it seemed whoever he could talk to became mesmerized by his presence. And it wasn't just his ardent followers. He also got politicians, and I'm sure it was from either party, uh, in that area to basically kowtow to him, uh, to give him different positions in the San Francisco city government. He was given awards, humanitarian awards. Uh, basically, he was celebrated and fated uh, by so many people. And then while all this was going on, he decided to take the step to move with a large group of followers, almost a thousand people, to set up this this area in the middle of the jungles in Guyana uh, in South America. And then after this thing had been set up, this is in the late 70s, 
few people escaped and some people would write and telephone home and word was getting out about how tyrannical he was and uh, how things were not really as good as they should have been. And that's what prompted a congressman, a U.S. congressman, to fly out there uh, to see what was going on. And this congressman, along with a couple other folks, were murdered. They were shot on the airstrip by Jones and his followers. And that was the proximate cause of him getting his whole group together and laying out the, uh, and by the way, the drink was Flavor-Aid. It was not Kool-Aid. It was actually Flavor-Aid. Unfortunately, Kool-Aid has suffered from this ever (laughs) since. Uh, But anyway, he he got this, uh, these vats of this Flavor-Aid, you know, which is a drink very similar to Kool-Aid, and they laced it with poison. And he was able to convince 900 people to commit suicide with him uh, rather than face what was going to come based on the on the bad incident that had occurred. Now, you got to say for somebody to convince people to take their own lives, and these are men, women, and children, um, that guy really must have had charismatic powers, but but look at the outcome. It was horrible. So is, yeah, I mean, so is this a case of, uh, with charisma, because as you've pointed out, and I know there's some more examples coming that, that are great, but I just got to ask a question. Is it kind of uh, the embodiment of the old saying, you know, uh, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely? Uh, the, these well, people seem yeah. to have a lot of power because of the charisma, right? Well, I think so. I mean, first of all, charisma does attract people's attention. It does attract followers uh, almost effortlessly. And so with that comes the opportunity to follow it up with power and in all of the examples I've given, and in the next one I'm going to give, it's really the same thing. Yes, all these people were attracted to power. And, you know, what you were describing about power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. That's the fav- the famous dictum of the British historian Lord Acton. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he actually, this famous dictum was in a letter that he wrote. Uh, to a to I believe it was the Bishop of London, um, saying that we need to be careful about this, uh, and we have to be very careful to whom we give power. And certainly, I would say that's why our government, our constitution, is constituted the way it is. Uh, the framers of our constitution were very well versed in the ancient uh, books like Plutarch's Lives. That was one of the main ones they all read. Uh, as well as the example of the ancient Roman Republic. And I think that's one of the very principal reasons why they established the institutions so that no one person and no one institution would have absolute power. Uh, I think there's a real, there was a real influence there, uh, and it has served us well. Um, and no matter how charismatic a given president might be, the president is always limited in his or someday her authority and power that they have. And that's a good thing. We should celebrate that. Uh, we should always maintain that distance and that skepticism. And I think the, the real example that I want to give is it's okay, Earl, is the one that drives us home more than any, any other one. Go so is it. it is it okay if I go for that one? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. 
Well, this is a story. I want to give the preface here real quickly. I was at the time teaching at West Point. This was in the early 1980s. And I had the opportunity and, and the privilege to teach for three years at West Point, And I taught in the Department of History. And one day, as I was in my office, one of the senior officers came by and he said, I want to take you to meet this guy. He's really, really interesting, and, and you should hear his story. And so I was taken to meet a man by the name of Aegon Weiss, uh, and his last name was W-E-I-S-S. -S. And as you can tell from the name and the way I'm pronouncing it, it's a name from Central Europe. It's a German name. And I sat down with Aegon, and he was uh, the generation older than I, And he told me his story from when he was young, and it's something that's always stayed with me. Uh, Egon was a Jew living in Vienna, Austria, and the time was 1938. Mm. And Adolf Hitler had just absorbed the Republic of Austria into Nazi Germany. This was called the Anschluss in German. And... Aegon's family, being Jewish, knew that this was not a good thing, and they were preparing to leave Vienna, which eventually, thank God, they did. But at this moment, and Aegon was a teenager, uh, as he described this in his story, he knew that Hitler was coming in triumph to Vienna to celebrate this great event. And to be quite blunt, it was largely to adoring crowds in Austria that Hitler came And remember, too, that Hitler was actually born in Austria. Mm -hmm. uh, he was not born in Germany. He was born in Austria. So for Hitler, you know, this was a big deal, a big triumph. And Aegon said to his father, I have got to go hear this man who is causing all this trouble for our family. And Aegon's father wasn't too keen on the idea. But Aegon reassured him and said, look, I can blend into the crowd. Nobody will know who I am. I just have to go hear this man who has caused so much problems for us. And so Aegon's father relented, and Aegon did blend into the crowd, and he went to hear Hitler speak live. Mm -hmm. And at this point in the story, Aegon turned to me and looked at me very intently. He was a very good, kind man, but I could tell from his look, he was saying, pay attention. And he looked at me and he said, and Adolf Hitler was the greatest orator I have ever heard. Mm. And I was absolutely floored by that statement. But I've never forgotten it. And and uh, Aegon, who passed away in the early 2000s at the age of 84, I think was telling me a very vital lesson. And he was telling me, look, this thing called charisma that gives people this power, this can have a very bad end. Yeah, uh, And we all know the bad end that occurred with Hitler. And, of course, Hitler was renowned for his ability, both in small groups and large groups, to actually almost hypnotize people uh, and get them so excited and so uh, committed to him. Uh, and we all know that that came to a very, very, very bad outcome for millions and millions of people. Um And so I've always used Aegon's story as a warning to people uh, that, no, we don't want leaders like that. We don't need leaders like that. We shouldn't have leaders like that. And as followers, we should always keep our healthy doubt and skepticism. 
and we should let leaders earn our trust. We should not get caught up in stuff where we basically yield and go along with what somebody says, no matter what it is. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, that's a that's a great story. And as as you're you're telling it, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, there's a whole generation out there right now that only knows the Rudy Giuliani of the past, you know, few months to year or so in the media. They don't understand that if the election had been held on uh, September 13th, that September 12th, Rudy Giuliani would have been a slam dunk because of his response to the September 11th tax and that kind of charismatic leadership that you were talking about that that he displayed uh, alongside President George Bush. Um, and and it's just it, it's interesting because as you're telling these stories, I'm thinking of all these examples in, in recent history, and that one just sticks out to me because, yeah, I mean, there was a time where, where he was he was uh, America's mayor, right? Oh yeah, although I I would I would caution here, Earl. I I actually I mean I've heard Rudy Giuliani speak a couple of times, and I can tell you that I don't think he really is charismatic. I think the thing is that he was in the right place at the right time. Right. And I will say, and I live just outside of New York, and and believe me, I saw the things that happened at nine eleven, um, because uh, I was actually working in New York City when all that stuff happened. Um, I think Giuliani handled himself and was an inspiration at the moment. Right. But I really don't think he was charismatic because I can tell you, I haven't heard him speak myself. You know, I, he's not the type of guy that's going to mesmerize you and and suddenly you're going to go along with stuff. I think his was the case that you cited being at the right place at the right time and, to his credit, doing a very good job at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um and it's those kind of heroic moments that can make somebody. But I don't think that's really charisma. Charisma okay. is this is this incredible ability to get people to just say, whatever you want, boss, I'll do it. Almost um, like a Pied Piper kind of yeah, effect in a way. It, exactly. And, and that's why I actually think charisma itself is very rare. I think there are very few people who actually have had that ability. Um, and like I say, in most instances, notice I don't say in all, uh, but I think in most instances, it has led to, to very bad outcomes. I think what you're talking about with people like Giuliani and other politicians is when they're at the right place at the right time, that moment can carry things forward. Um, but that, you know, once again, I'm defining it very, very narrowly. That to me is not charisma. You know, charisma is that mesmerizing ability and the person has this ability with so many people to pull it off. Hmm. Yeah, well, because you in your book, uh, you you do kind of talk about the 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 two people that everybody always picks as the best presidents of U.S. history: George Washington and, and Abraham Lincoln. And, and you kind of make that same point about them not necessarily being very charismatic, right? No, that's true. And and Lincoln's the easy one to make the point with. Um, because when you look at Lincoln's life and his behavior and what people said about him before the end of the Civil War, before he was assassinated, um, so many people thought he was a dolt and a country bumpkin. Um, and of course, we know in hindsight 
that he wasn't, that he was a very wise, very shrewd man uh, and a very great man uh, in terms of what he accomplished. But at the time when he was going through all this, you know, which was, of course, the Civil War, which was his his whole presidency, um, you know, even his own cabinet would get very frustrated with him. And another way to point that out is the Gettysburg Address, you know, which is a magnificent speech. Um, but despite Steven Spielberg's movie, you know, Lincoln and stuff, nobody was reciting the Gettysburg Address until after Lincoln was dead. Right. Um, and actually, that speech, uh, some newspapers, some union newspapers panned the speech. One union newspaper described the speech as dishwatery. Uh. Um, so the point is with Lincoln that he, you know, boy, talk, he was the uncharisma guy, uh, <laughs> I would say. I think the example of George Washington is a little bit tougher because George Washington was tall. Uh, he was apparently an expert horseman, and that was extraordinarily important in terms of image in those days. Um, you know, when you would ride up on a big horse and if you were tall, uh, that, that, that optic, you know, that image was, was extraordinarily powerful. But I would even argue that Washington, who was much more, you know, had a much more commanding presence, presence than Lincoln did. I would still argue that Washington himself was not charismatic. Um, for one thing, he was not a particularly gifted speaker. He actually didn't speak all that much. And he usually spoke from his notes. Um, and there were people that turned against him. Let's not forget that Benedict Arnold was quite close to George Washington. Right. And yet Benedict Arnold tried to uh, sell my alma mater, West Point, uh, before it was the academy, but it was just an American fort, tried to sell it to the British. And he did turn, turn tail and became a traitor. Um, so Washington didn't have, I don't feel the historical evidence is he did not have that ability to mesmerize people. I think once again, Washington earned people's trust and adoration over time based on what he was able to accomplish. And for Washington, it was incredibly hard work, just like it was for Lincoln. Mm. Um, you know, Washington fought this incredibly long war, keeping the United States Army intact because that was what the country was. You know, in other words, if the British got rid of the army, they got rid of the country. Right. Uh, and so it, it was a much more difficult thing. And then I finally end up with Washington by reminding people, hey, he became president. And guess what? People disagreed with him. Uh, his two yeah. terms, his two terms of president were not a walk in the park right. at all. Um, and the, the great thing about him was that's how he designed it because he was the president of the Constitutional Convention that put together the government that he ended up heading up. Yeah. And, and then in the most magnificent gesture, he left the presidency and went back to his farm. Amazing. It, yeah. I mean, because I, I think that's the one thing a lot of people don't, realize about the the two terms is you know that was never a, a law until relatively recently correct it was a yeah. precedent yeah. set by george washington right um and it was magnificent but once again 
we look back on people like Washington and Lincoln and we realize how great they were. Right. But that doesn't mean that they were charismatic. Um, and once again, and, and you know, this is me. I'm just trying to define it very narrowly because what I'm really trying to say to people is, look, as leaders, don't look for that. You're going to have people disagree with you. And guess what? You should. That's human nature and followers have autonomy and people are going to disagree. And we have to learn how to overcome that, how to convince people either with our authority, which is top down, which is a pretty blunt instrument, or by our influence, which is more our behavior from the bottom up influencing people. You know, we've got to deal with those things. Um, and we can never expect that it's going to be easy street uh, when we're in a leadership position. It's not. It takes a lot of hard work. So let's look at it that way rather than say, oh, I want to be charismatic and make people automatically fall in love with me. We, we don't want that. Yeah, no, I, I again, I love it. And, and you know, as you were saying that last piece, it reminds me of, uh, it's actually a, a podcast I just posted uh, a few episodes ago. I can't remember the episode number, uh, mm -hmm. but it was it was about uh, uh, Colonel John Boyd, the United States mm -hmm. Air Force. Yeah. And he had a famous, uh, he had a famous saying, it says, when somebody asks for your integrity, you give them your loyalty. If they ask for your, or excuse me, when somebody asks for your loyalty, you give them your integrity. If they ask for your integrity, give them your loyalty. Mm -hmm. it, it sounds like the same, you know, that hit here because these charismatic people, they're asking, they're maybe not even with, with uh, maybe even without asking, they're demanding your loyalty to not necessarily question what they want you to do. Right. And you right. compromise your integrity. That's, that's, and, and I think that's an excellent way of putting it. Um, I think in so many of these cases, actually, the charismatic leader simply assumed people were training aids for their own personal glory. And when people use other humans as props or training aids uh, just for their own exaltation, uh, that's trouble. So, I'll play the role of the audience here. So you've convinced me. <laughs> uh, charisma. Uh, it's something to be very cautious of and, and uh, you know, the, the intoxicating effects. How do we guard ourselves against that? Um, excellent question, Earl. I think there, there are two ways to look at it. One is from the standpoint of the leader uh, as we, you know, as people are out there developing as leaders. And the other is as a follower. Um, and the leader thing, I think I already touched on, um, don't look for charisma. You know, the odds are you don't have it. So don't try to find it mm -hmm. and be glad that you don't, uh, because leadership is actually hard work. Uh, there's always going to be human tension in every human relationship and basically accept that and work within that as a leader. And for followers, the lesson is don't ever give up your own autonomy completely. Um, you know, all these relationships that we have, even the leader to follower relationship is a mutual one. Um, and as a follower, there are things that you can give the leader of your own volition. Um, you know, things don't need to be squeezed out of you like a lemon. Um, 
And when followers retain their autonomy, as long as it's reasonable, actually, I think organizations perform better. Um, and so as a leader, don't ever give that up. You know, don't ever have that switch turned on in your brain where you say, oh, my gosh, whatever this person says, I'm going to do. No, no. Always maintain a certain bit of distance, a certain bit of autonomy. Um, and, and that's actually, I think, much healthier um, for all of us. The kind of the old Reagan adage, trust but verify. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that applies actually in most, if not all, human relations. Um, and like I say, there's tension in all of our relations. And the thing is, we'll never get rid of that tension because we're humans. Right. Uh, what we have to do is we have to manage it and work through it. Well, and, and it's it's healthy though, right? I mean, it's it's. Uh, you know, one of the things, again, that we talk about a lot uh, over here at the Leadership Phalanx is is cognitive diversity mm-hmm. and, and putting that together. And, and that doesn't happen if that, that, quote, charismatic leader is saying something in everybody's head is bobbing north and south. If Absolutely. Yep. If somebody's head's not going east and west and challenging and asking questions, you don't get to the best solution. No, that's right. Um and the thing is, the best solutions always take more work. Yeah. Um, there aren't easy solutions out there. And, and, you know, like what we're going through right now with the coronavirus, there aren't easy solutions. We've got to, all together, we've got to work through them. And it's going to be a hell of a lot of work. Um, but there's no magic wand. And uh, there's no, you know, there's no one person that's going to say, oh, I'll set it all right. Uh, it's going to take a lot of effort at a lot of levels. Yeah. Uh, and and that's what it's going to take. Well, you know, I love it. And again, I, uh, you know, I knew we'd uh, we'd get another good, healthy discussion out of this topic. And and uh, I, I really appreciate you coming back and, and, and hitting on it because you shared a lot of good stuff. Um, you know, and, and I will just say this. I 100 percent agree with you about the uh, kind of the ancient works. Uh, you know, one of my favorite books, and I've got it on an ebook now, and I flip through it every once in a while. Is is uh, the Enchiridion, uh, and 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 I love reading that. And I'll be honest, how I got set on it was uh, uh, actually uh, Admiral James Bond Stockdale hearing mm-hmm. how he relied mm-hmm. on the Stoics to get his people through uh, the POW camps at Hanoi Hilton. Right. And, yeah. Uh, that that's powerful stuff, and it's it's just amazing that these these works that were written thousands of years ago they they haven't lost an ounce of oomph in helping us live our lives today. No, that's a very good point, and I think they all these things point out that human nature uh, really hasn't changed. We all face the same challenges. The challenges may look different; uh, they may take on a different scale. But as human beings, we, we go through the same, the same things, even if it was 5,000 years ago. Um, just to that point, this is, this is actually a little less serious, but, um, there's this thing that I read, uh, and it was from a person who was on a work detail. He was supervising people and he said, why are you making me? Cause he was referring to the next level up. Why are you making me get my people, take them from their work site? bring them all the way over where you are to get their new equipment. Why can't you bring it to me? 
And the thing is, this was written in 2200 BC by an Egyptian. Uh, <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, I mean, mm. some, some problems never cease and they've been around a long time. <laughs> it is. It's, it, it's amazing. Like it's, as far as we, th- I mean, you hit the nail on the head. As far as we think we've come, we, we really haven't moved very much. It's, it's like you said, it's just the way the problems present. They're the same problems. They just present themselves a little bit different. And you're right, Earl. And, and we can get, though, inspiration from the experiences of other people. Uh, as somebody once said, history may not be a map, but it sure is a c- good compass. Um, and I think, I think that's the benefit we can get from uh, the historical records that we have. And I really hope, particularly the young people out there, you know, they're listening, go grab some of these things. They're, they're out there. They're available. But look at some of these stories from thousands of years ago, uh, because I really feel we can relate to these people. And I think that gives us that gives us hope and it gives us strength. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's I've, I've long been a strong proponent that, that history may be even more than than any other uh, subject is probably the most important subject we should we should learn because. Uh, that's not to discount math and science and all that, but we we, we aren't facing anything new. The, the answers have pretty much all already been discovered. We just don't see how they apply to our current situation. Well, and the thing is, each situation is unique, but the approaches and the importance of human behavior, I think those are the constants. Mm-hmm. And And like I said, in the situation we're in now, it's going to take a lot of work. Um, and, and we will see, by the way, we will see very good human behavior, very noble human behavior, and we're going to see some rotten human behavior. Yeah. Um, I've already heard about the guys who were trying to corner the market on Purell, um, uh, you know, the stuff you rub on your hands. Uh, some guys were trying to corner the market on that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, and, and, and I'm, I'm a Tennessean, uh, and, and that, yeah, that that really rubbed me raw because uh, you know th- those jokers were from Chattanooga, and uh, you know, you, you, I, I have a different idea of how Tennesseans should act, being a Tennessean, and that ain't it. <laughs> but, no, and I'm sure, and I'm sure, actually, the vast majority of Tennesseans are behaving very well. And it, and I, by the way, I didn't bring it up to beat on Tennessee at all because <laughs> I see people hoarding stuff here in New York. Yeah, uh, where I am. Um, but you know, we're going to see in this instance that we're living through right now, we're going to see human behavior, uh, throughout the spectrum. And I think what we can do is try to find the best, try to imitate the best, uh, and try to support the best in all of us. Um, and it's, it's going to be a long slog. Um, but you know, but we're up to it and we can do it. Yep, definitely, definitely. That's uh, that's a great thing about where we live and the times we live in is we have, you know, we're we're not uh, we're not Europe with the the bubonic plague moving through. We have a lot more resources available right now, and uh, so that's good. No, uh, we kind of got off topic there a little <laughs> bit, but um, no, I mean, I just I really appreciate your perspective on charisma, and, and I like the way you put it because. You know that that's that's a good discussion to have because uh, 
you know, a lot of people, a lot of people value that charisma quality. And uh, as you pointed out, I think most people really don't have charisma. Yeah. You've sold me on that concept. Uh, So I like it. I I like it. And, uh, you know, I I just want to uh, uh, take a second again here to uh, have, you know, encourage my listeners uh, to go go pick up your book, uh, Leadership, Tough Love. Uh, A lot of the stuff that we uh, discussed in uh, episode 212 and today can be found in that. Um, and, uh, yeah, read up on what Tim's works are and catch up on some of these, uh, ancient manuscripts. They are definitely worth the read. Uh, so with that, uh, Tim, is there anything we haven't discussed yet about charisma that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I think, uh, you know, my summary is, and this is taken from my book, charisma is very rare. And in most cases, very dangerous. Don't go there. Uh, so if I can leave the listeners with that, uh, I hope that that will help out. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, Tim, again, thank you for being with us. I really appreciate you coming back on so soon. And uh, I really enjoyed this discussion. Thank you. Well, Earl, I really enjoy the work you do and, and keep it up, uh, especially these kinds of podcasts in this uh, age where we're going to be doing a lot of stuff remotely. Uh, the stuff that you do is is so useful and so important. So please keep it up. Well, thank you for that. I don't plan on going anywhere anytime soon. So uh, listeners, thank you for your time and, and tuning in for this uh, for this second podcast with Mr. Loopfer. Uh, if you'd like it, uh, I'll get his contact information up again. It's, it's on the 212 uh, uh, episode show notes, but I'll get that up there again. Um, again, I'll link to his book and, uh, you know, thanks for spending your time with us. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know, the drill burden.command at gmail.com. Uh, we are now on all of the podcast, uh, delivery platforms. Uh, so Stitcher, Spotify, you can find us on there. Be sure you subscribe. So this shows up in your feed, uh, automatically. Give me some reviews. Uh, I've had a few. Uh, It's been a while since I've got one. I'd like to know how you like this season of the show. Uh, With that, I'll uh, leave it it at that, and I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast, Back to the Arena, the Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to the Candle Power Hour. Come with us backstage, behind the scenes of show business spanning over four decades and bringing you the experiences that can only be told by the people who were there. Our guests are from the A-list, the F-list, and everyone in between. Get set for some of the most insane, hilarious, and inspiring stories you will ever hear. I'm Mercury. And I'm Diego. Your hosts for The The Candle Candle Power Power Hour. Hour.